34 years ago today, I was sitting on pins and needles. Three days from Valentine's Day, 34 years ago, I had determined that was the day that I was going to ask Jalen Claridge to marry me. And on the day before Valentine's Day was, I think that year was a Friday, and I was teaching in the same private school that Jalen was. She taught elementary, and I taught uh, in the middle school. And I went to, my, went to my faculty box, and there was a Valentine card from her. So I opened that Valentine card up, and, and I could tell it was one of the Valentines, same one of the cards that we bought for her to, to write Valentines to her class. And so I thought that was, uh, that was great, and I opened it up. It's the first Valentine I had ever received from, a, from someone of the opposite sex, other than just the, the natural exchange of Valentines growing up in, uh, in elementary school and middle school. And I, I read that card and I tried to find some kind of message in it that would indicate to me that if I asked her to marry me, she would say yes. Well, it's hard to find that on a, in a uh, Mickey Mouse uh, card, but uh, maybe that was the message to me. And so I, I read that card so closely and, and at the end of it she wrote, love, Jay. And I thought to myself, now does she mean I love you like I don't love other people, or do I love you in the same way I love other people? I couldn't determine. I get a magnifying glass. I look to see, did she, did she write it pressing a little bit harder, or maybe it was a little bit less than the intensity that she wrote the other words, and she's trying to say to me, you know, don't ask me. Uh, I don't want to have to say no to you. And then I look and I say, I wonder what that comma, I wonder if that comma was intended for me to pause after love, Jay, I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. It didn't soothe my conscience in, in, any, uh, in any way at all. And that's what Valentine's Day is in a sense. It's kind of a, uh, a moment of anticipation and a hope and a long for, uh, for romantic love. You know, there's something inside of all of us that want to love someone and, and to receive that love in return. I think that's a part of God's good gift to us. It's, it's the residual effects of the image of God that we were created to love. We were created to love God and we were created to love one another. We were created to, to know that God loves us and to, and to experience that love and, and to experience the love that comes from camaraderie and, and friendship. In fact, the Bible is, is filled with this idea of love and how important love should be in the lives of God's people. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 says this, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Out of all the things God could say about himself, as he writes through the apostle John, he says, I am love. God is love. Now he's more than that, but he's definitely not less than that. And so as John writes to the churches of Asia Minor, he wants to remind them God is love. Jesus, just a couple of days before he was crucified, was asked by a religious leader, 
What's the greatest commandment in the law? Out of all of the 600 plus Old Testament commandments, uh, negative, positive, out of all of the commandments, what's the greatest? How do you sum it all up? And this is the question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you, how do you summarize this, this religion that we, that we believe, Jesus? How do you summarize all of the writings of the Old Testament prophets and the wisdom literature and the law? He says, love God with your entire being and, and love one another as yourself. The most famous verse in the entire Bible extols the virtue of love, divine love, God's love. If you were to ask any believer, what's the first verse that you, that you remember learning? Or maybe just the person on the street that just was a casual comer and goer uh, to church as they grew up and, and had not been in church for many, many years. If they know anything about the Bible, they know John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice that God demonstrated his love by giving. There's something about love that wants to give. I think that's a part of the, of the image of God that's in us. We want to love someone. We want to care for them. We want to nurture them. Well, we get that from God, for God loved us, the Bible says. We turn from the love of God to the love of Christ. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ loved you. And gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. John 3.16 says God loves us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says Christ loves us. John 3.16 says God loves us and he demonstrated it by giving his son. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says Christ loves us and he demonstrated it by giving himself. In the upper room, just hours before Jesus was arrested, he said to the disciples in John chapter 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, it's easy to see that the scriptures extol the virtue of love. God's love for us, Christ's love for us, our love for God and our love for one another. But maybe there's no passage of Scripture that crystallizes it any more clearly, any more majestically, any more magnificently than 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All of the Bible's inspired. We believe that to be true. But it seems like there are some mountain peaks. There are some passages of Scripture that shine 
ever more brightly than, than the rest of Scripture shines. If we think of Scripture as a, as a, a, a group of magnificent and beautiful stars illuminating the night sky, it seems like there are some passages that are like the North Star. John chapter 1 and the prologue there. Another, another is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's, it's maybe the most famous chapter in the Bible. Uh, even people who have, who have never been to, to church to worship God, if they attend a wedding, it's very likely, if they attend very many weddings, that at some point 1 Corinthians 13 will be read. Uh, follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I, will know, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. In one sense, this passage is a description of the God we serve. It's not a complete description but it's an accurate description. Neil Wilson writes, before we rush to trivialize these words about love by assuming that they can easily fit us, let's stop to consider that they actually describe God's character. These are not sugary claims. They are hard-edged descriptions of God's person and perfection in relationship. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write a breathtaking, beautiful description of the nature of God. Only God can put his character in us. And that takes some assembly, assembly required. 
A significant part of sanctification, that is becoming more and more like Jesus, ever growing into the, into the likeness and the image and the character of Jesus, sanctification, a significant part of that is God developing these qualities in our lives. And at the same time, us, by his grace, cutting off those that would tarnish those qualities. All the time developing in us a greater capacity to fulfill the first and the second great commandment. But these qualities are formed by the fire of relationships. God doesn't develop these qualities in our lives in the absence of relationships. He develops them in relationships. And he develops them in the relationships first and foremost that are closest to us. He begins at home, in the dorm room, in the family gatherings. This is where he forges us in the fire of relationships. In the opening of this passage, we need to be reminded of the fact where it's placed. It's it's, it's situated strategically between two sections on spiritual gifts. The two most important chapters on spiritual gifts in the entire Bible are 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And right in the middle, God has ordained and he led the Apostle Paul to write the most magnificent and spectacular description of love found anywhere in the Bible. Because he wants us to understand just because a person is spiritually gifted doesn't make a person spiritually mature. You receive a gift, a spiritual gift, when you are born again. It's possible to be very gifted, yet spiritually immature. It's possible to be theologically sophisticated and biblically literate. Maybe knowing Greek and Hebrew. Maybe knowing the ins and outs of the difficult places of the Bible and still to be a spiritual infant. That's what he's wanting to communicate. In fact, the opening of the, of the chapter tells us that a life without love is a wasted life. A life without love is a wasted life. You can do all kinds of magnificent things. You can, you can do all kinds of spectacular deeds. You can have a, a magnificent voice and lead worship and be spiritually immature. You can have a a fantastic, marvelous, charismatic personality that's able to proclaim the scriptures in in a gripping and exhilarating way and be spiritually immature. You can give all that you have to feed poor children in the various places of the world and be spiritually immature. You can lay down your life for the advancement of the gospel and it mean absolutely nothing to God if you're not a person of love. A life without love is a wasted life. Graham Scroggie put it this way. 
The pages of Christian history show that men will fight and die for Christianity who will not live its spirit, which is love. It would have been striking for the Corinthians to have heard what Paul said because they were a theologically sophisticated people with a lot of knowledge. They had a lot of spiritual gifts by which they felt put them above and beyond other people in their spirituality. And yet, Paul says, with all of your gifts and all of your abilities and all of your knowledge and all of your insight, if you are not a person of love, your life is a wasted life. But then he moves into what is one of the most, one of the most magnificent passages in the Bible, verses 4 through 7, that teach us that God-like love It's demonstrated by how you treat people, especially those closest to you. It's going to describe love in in two beautiful qualities, which I think when you look at these two qualities and you meditate on them and you reflect on them, you you would acknowledge that Jesus exemplified these qualities better than any person in the history of the world. But as you read back through the pages of Scripture, you see over and over these qualities being being not just extolled by Jesus, but actually being demonstrated by Jesus. Two positive expressions of love. The first one is that love is patient. The idea of patience means to be long-tempered. The opposite, obviously, is to be short-tempered. The term is used to describe God in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 says this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. That is, the Spirit-filled life demonstrates the quality of patience. And, and, and the patience that we exemplify is mirrored in the image of God. It's, it's a picture of who God is. But God develops our patience through our dealings with people with whom we are impatient. That he puts the people that rub us the most, the wrong way the most, and he puts them right in our home. Sometimes we sleep with them. We raise them. They raise us. It's it's the people that we see every day and, and their shortcomings and their weaknesses, they just seem to grate on us. And God has strategically and providentially put them in our lives because he loves us and he wants to develop the quality of patience in us. And he wants us to love them with long-temperedness, we might say. Love is patient. And then he says love is kind. The word kindness is very close to the idea of gentleness. You might call it the counterpart to patience. If patience is being long 
tempered. Kindness is being gentle with that person. It's a fruit of the Spirit, again, oddly enough. That is, as God fills us with himself and manifests through us the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to become ever more patient and ever more kind. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 puts these two ideas of patience and kindness together. Paul writes, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now we're real big about talking about we've been chosen of God. We really like the idea of election and and God foreordaining and drawing. We, We just love that. But if those truths don't make us more kind and patient and gentle, we don't have much of an idea about what they really mean. And so he says, put it on. Like you put on a coat. Like you you put on a, a clean shirt. Put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. God didn't do it by osmosis. God empowers us to put these qualities on as we exercise them. There's this magnificent synergism. There's this magnificent uh, dual activity taking place. God's grace is energizing us as we act in obedience to his word. He doesn't force us to become more kind. He expects us to become more kind. And as we are becoming more kind, we discover he's the one that is enabling us to express it. Now, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus when you take these two terms together. The verse that that often resonates in my mind and and I I think the Lord does it to torment me because it's so much unlike me. Because he wants me to be more and more like this. It was said of Jesus, a bruised reed he never broke, a smoldering wick he never put out. Not a single time did he ever break a bruised reed. And not once, not one single time did he put out a smoldering wick. Paul's writing these words to a spirit-gifted people. To a congregation in the city of Corinth that lacked the fruit of the spirit. The fullness of the spirit. The patience of the spirit. And the kindness of the Spirit. He begins, interestingly enough, with these two positive qualities. But then I want you to notice that he begins to describe what love is not. What love does not do. It's as as if, you know, it's, it's so beautiful and magnificent. I've got to tell you what it's not. Because it's so hard for me to get my arms around what it is. It's indefinable. Indescribable. It's beyond anything that I can articulate beyond patience and kindness. But I can tell you what it's not. And it's as if this is the best I can do. So he says, love is not jealous. 
The NIV translates it, the love is not envious. It doesn't have bad feelings toward those who seem to get the easier and better way. It doesn't brag and it isn't arrogant. It doesn't boast. It's not a name dropper. It's not conceited. It focuses on the strengths of others. It highlights where they're strong. It doesn't overlook where they're weak, but it doesn't focus on their weaknesses. The Corinthians, while spiritually gifted, as I've mentioned, were a very arrogant congregation. In chapter 3, verse 18, they brag about their wisdom. They've got the degrees to prove they've been to the right schools. In chapter 8, verse 2, they brag about their knowledge by putting down what others don't know. And in chapter 14, verse 37, they, they brag about their spirituality because they think that spiritual giftedness equals spiritual maturity, forgetting that even babies have a spiritual gift, spiritual babies. You know, these, these words, jealousy, arrogance, Bragging. They're very descriptive words. They're ugly words. And Paul's writing to describe to the Corinthians what love does not look like. He says so that it doesn't act unbecomingly. Love treats, love treats others with politeness and consideration and rules out rudeness. Sometimes you have to wonder if if a lady would have married the man if the man behaved after they were married the way that he that way before they were married. You didn't find many belches going out over over, over dinner during those those early days of of dating. You didn't find, you know, it's raining, it's raining outside. Uh, I'm not going to pull up and get you. We'll just every, it's every person for themselves. Let's just run for it. That's not, the way that we, that's not the way that we won the love of the one that we marry. Love is polite and considerate. It doesn't seek its own. It's not selfish. It asks, how will this decision impact my family? How will this choice impact others? The most selfless person that ever walked the face of this earth was Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul using Jesus as the example said, don't look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. He goes on to say, love is not provoked. It doesn't respond with anger is not easily angered. That is, love has a tremendous amount of self-control. Love is thick-skinned in all the right places. It's tender-hearted and gentle, and yet at the same time, it's thick-skinned. It's not easily provoked. It's not easily angered. There's a lot of self-control. You're going to have to kick me very hard to make me angry with you because I love you is the idea. 
It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It doesn't make light of that which is offensive to God. But then notice, he takes four verbs and he makes the object of these four verbs the words all things. Love bears all things. Some translation says love covers all things. Love believes all things. It hopes the best about others. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It looks forward and not backward. Love endures all things. That is, it doesn't give up. Love's Love holds on despite difficulties and hardship and pain. There's great tenacity with love. I tell sometimes parents who have teenagers that are, that are struggling, you know, it's like you're in a boat with your, with your teenager and, and, the, and the water's rocky and the sea is, sea is stormy. They're going to try and throw you out of the boat, but don't let go. Hold on with great tenacity. Love endures all things. And so Paul paints such a beautiful portrait. And what he wants us to do is to take it right into the closest relationships that we have and then begin to examine those relationships to see if love is being expressed in a genuine and concerted way. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Practice of Godliness, paraphrases 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and his chapter on love. And, and I'd like to read it to you. It's, it's, it's really quite, quite good. Jerry Bridges writes, I am patient with you because I love you and want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I love you. And want to help you. I do not envy your possessions or your gifts because I love you and want you to have the best. I do not boast about my attainments because I love you and want to hear about yours. I'm not proud because I love you. And want to esteem you before myself. I am not rude because I love you. And care about your feelings. I'm not self-seeking. Because I love you. And I want to meet your needs. I'm not easily angered by you. Because I love you and want to overlook your offenses. I do not keep a record of your wrongs because I love you. And love covers a multitude of sins. Well, I want to give you some closing thoughts. Some closing thoughts for, who, for those who want to be like God... And a couple of thoughts for those who don't. The 
the first thought is this, God loves you. He loves you because he created you. If you know him or don't know him, God loves you. If you're his child, he loves you in a peculiar way. He loves you in a particular way. He loves you in a specific way, a a way that goes beyond just loving everyone. I I think of it like this. When my children were were little and we served in in various churches, I I honestly love children. And if you were to say, do you love the children of your church? I would say, I genuinely do. I'm, I genuinely am concerned. I gen- genuinely want the best for them. I want the best people working in our preschool and, and in our nurseries. I want them to be cared for and nurtured. I, I love the children of our, our church, but there are three children that I love in a way that exceeds how much I love any of the children in our church. One little girl and two little boys. I love them with a particular kind of love, a specific kind of love, a peculiar kind of love, a love that exceeds the love that I have for any other child in all the the world, my own children. If you know God, that's how God loves you. He loves all of us because he created us and he is love. But he loves his children in a peculiar way. You may be all alone on this Thanksgiving The person that you've spent most of your life with has passed away in the last few years. And you had spent almost all of your life on Valentine's Day with that particular person. And now they're gone. They're waiting for you in heaven. There's a void and an emptiness and a longing in your heart. Be encouraged. God loves you. God loves you more than anybody has ever loved you. God loves you more than all the people in your world combined love you. God loves you. The second thing is this, God wants you to love him. And God wants you to love him in part by loving those closest to you and then slowly expanding that out. God wants you to, if you're married, he wants you to love your spouse. He wants you to love your children if you have children. He wants you to love your parents. He wants you to love your grandparents. He wants you to love your siblings. He wants it to be an ever-growing, ever-expanding, always intensifying kind of love. You may be single and you have a, you have a roommate. Maybe you live in a college dorm. God wants you to, to, to love with a godly love that brother in Christ that, that, that you are a roommate with. He wants you to serve that brother. He wants you to have a brotherly love for them. And that's how God develops our capacity to love, by loving those around us. Because they're the ones that rub us the wrong way the most. They're the ones that hurt us the deepest. They're the ones that that have the sharpest points. But let's be honest. If I can't love those closest to me whom I can see... How can I love God whom I can't see? That's the Apostle John, not Pastor Cook. And so God says, I'm going to rub the rough edges of love off your life. And I'm going to use those close to you to force you to choose love. 
And so what do you do? You, you pray and you love. And what you find is only as you love does God enable you to love. Only as you choose to love does God empower you to love. It's that synergism again, that, 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 that coming together of divine grace and human, and human choice that God uses to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. I want you to take some time this week and just kick back and think for a moment. The people in my world do they know how much I love them? And if not, why not? Start with the people closest to you. But maybe you're here today and, and you're one of those that, you know, I, I don't love God. I, I, don't even, I don't even think that much about God loving me. You know, only God can cause you to want him. And the most dangerous place in the world to be is to not want God because that's a demonstration that God's not working in your life. When God begins to work in your life, he begins to open you up to himself. But if you're closed to God, it's because God's hand is not at work in you. You say, Pastor, what do I do? You begin to pray, God, help me to be open to you. Or you say, you pray something like this, God, if you're true, if you're real, I want you to open my heart to you. And then I want to challenge you, test God in this. Start reading the Bible. Open the Bible and just pray coldly, maybe even heartlessly. If you're true, prove it to me. And start reading the Bible. And see what happens. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I'd, I'd like to talk to somebody about this. I, I'm really concerned about my spiritual life. Well, we're going to have a, a time of commitment here in just a moment. We're going to invite you to come forward. We'll introduce you to somebody that will talk with you privately, confidentially, a man to a man, a lady to a lady. And we'll just open up the Bible and answer just any question you've got. Any question that you have that... We can answer, we will answer, and if, if they can't do it, we'll find the answer for you. Maybe you're looking for a church home, we'd invite you to, to come down during this time. We'd love to introduce you to somebody that can talk with you privately, confidentially about the, the process for church membership. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, I'm going to lead us in a, in a word of prayer. Greg's going to come, and in just a moment we're going to join our, our voices together in song, but let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that that the words that we've read from 1 Corinthians 13, they're, they're not very difficult. They're each just a couple of syllables long. And yet they're packed with deep, rich truth. And when we read them, we see how far they are beyond our human capacity apart from you to put into practice. And yet you haven't left us to ourselves You've given us your spirit that we can exemplify your character by loving those closest to us. So, Father, have your, your way in our lives in these final, final moments as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.